17 through 27. Every good gift, every perfect gift, comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the creator of the heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change at all. He chose to give us birth by his true word, and here is the result. We are like the first crop from the harvest of everything he created. Knowing this, my dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to grow angry. This is because an angry person doesn't produce God's righteousness. Therefore, with humility, set aside all moral filth and the growth of wickedness and welcome the word planted deep inside you, the very word that is able to save you. You must be doers of the word and not only hearers who mislead themselves. Those who hear but don't do the word are like those who look at their faces in a mirror. They look at themselves, walk away, and immediately forget what they were like. But there are those who study the perfect law, the law of freedom, and continue to do it. They don't listen and then forget, but they put it into practice in their lives. They will be blessed in whatever they do. If those who claim devotion to God don't control what they say, they mislead themselves. Their devotion is worthless. True devotion, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father, is this, the care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. We're also looking this morning at the Old Testament text for today. So if you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapter 2 this morning. As you turn to Song of Solomon, that's either going to be a place that's never been opened in your Bible or a place that is worn out. We don't know. Um, but if you turn with me to Song of Solomon... We are in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And if you're present with us this morning, Abel, I'd invite you to stand in honor of, of the Lord's word. The sound of thunder. <laughs> Listen. It's my lover. Here he comes now, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Here he stands now outside our wall, peering through the windows, peeking through the lattices. My lover spoke and said to me, rise up, my dearest, my fairest, and go. Here the winter is past. The rains have come and gone. Blossoms have appeared in the land. The season of singing has arrived. The sound of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The green fruit is on the fig tree and the grapevines in bloom are fragrant. So rise up, my dearest, my fairest, and go. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I don't know if you uh, paid attention a couple of weeks ago. I think it was August the 12th. It was actually a Thursday night. If you're a baseball fan, they kind of did an interesting thing this year. They went to Dyersville, Iowa, a town that has about 4,000 people in it. And they built a stadium that would seat 8,000 people. Dyersville is the city where the Field of Dreams was shot. 
And the farmer who made uh, the field for the movie has kept it. It's become kind of a, a tourist spot to see if you drive through Iowa. But Major League Baseball decided this year they would, they would build a kind of replica of that field of dreams near the original one that would seat 8,000 people. And then they did the coolest thing on a Thursday night. They had a game between the Chicago White Sox and the New York Yankees. And they had this kind of small stadium and the, the players came in kind of classic uniforms and they came out of the field. They came walking out of the cornfield. Turned out to be a really great game. Um, in fact, in a sign that the new creation is breaking out, the White Sox beat the Yankees on a, uh, <laughs> on a walk-off home run that was hit out into the cornfield and they ran the bases. One of the interesting things about the game was not just the uniqueness of the location and the fact that, um, you know, a town of 4,000 all of a sudden became a town of 12,000. But, but what's fascinating is that how many people watched the game. In fact, uh, it, it was the most watched baseball game in over 15 years. Uh, and part of it's probably some of us who are of that generation 30 years ago when Field of Dreams came out that are connected to that. But... But part of it, and I think it's a trope that you find in, in kind of almost every sports movie or show at some point. Usually there's a sports show and it's usually about a great athlete, professional athlete, somebody who has achieved fame and fortune and notoriety. But at some point, right, the pressures of that, the pressures of the fame, the pressures of the, the business part of sports, the pressures of all that are getting to them and they're not playing well. And at some point in that movie or show, a coach will come along and say, come with me. And take that baseball player back to their little league field. Take that soccer player back to the pitch that they grew up on. Take that hockey player back to the, the rink where they first learned to skate. Take that golfer back to the driving range where they first learned to hit golf balls. And somehow they'll take them back there in order to remind them of this. You are playing a game for a living. You're playing a game. That's meant to be fun. It's a kid's game played in a cornfield with a ball and some sticks. At the heart of it, it's older, bigger, muscular athletes. But at the heart of it, you're still getting the joy of playing a game. This morning is kind of unique. The text comes from Song of Solomon. I've been looking forward to it for some time for a number of reasons. First of all, I've been excited to see it's family Sunday. It's our first Sunday in this room. And I've been excited to see what coloring sheets Pastor Heather came up with for the kids. Um, <laughs> my understanding is they're appropriate. Um, but the Song of Solomon is kind of, a, is obviously an interesting and kind of a problematic book, actually, in the scripture. It is, um, it's about love. And it's about romantic love. And uh, there are moments where it's kind of graphic in its description of that. In fact, I counted this week, Pastor Brent, that there are about, in the three-year cycle of the lectionary, I think there are about 700 texts between Sundays and all the special, you know, Monday, Thursdays, Good Fridays, all those kinds of services. There are about 700 texts that in a three-year period we will hear in worship together, but only one of them is from Song of Solomon, and that's the one today. And in part because we don't, we don't kind of know what to do with this book in the canon. It's just so strange and odd. One of my favorite stories to tell, I've told a few of you, but when I was a student here uh, way back, um, 
my freshman, the summer after my freshman year, I traveled for the college in a singing group. And, and there were just two guys in the group, me and a guy named Kirk. And our very first week, we headed out to Wyoming and to sing at a camp and to, to be at this camp. And so they put Kirk and I in the junior high boys cabin to be counselors. And there was another pastor in the room uh, counseling with us. And, um, and it was honestly, it was a terrible week. Um, these junior hires were just, what's the word I'm looking for? Demon possessed. Um, <laughs> I think that's it. They kept hiding our stuff and putting shaving cream in our sleeping bags. They just thought they were so funny doing all these kind of pranks on us all week. Well, then on Thursday night, they all got saved because it was Thursday night. Um, and, uh, and so after this great service and a bunch of them had come to the altar, we go back for kind of cabin time. And, and they, many of them are crying and, and they, were, they were finally getting in their suitcases and looking for the Bible that their mother had packed in there, you know, that they hadn't taken with them yet. And so Kirk and I got back to the room first and, and these guys were getting in their Bibles and this one, I'll never forget, so cute, uh, may be here today, um, but he was crying and he said to me, he goes, oh, Scott, you know, he goes, we're so sorry that we've been doing all this stuff. You know, we just, we want to be good. Um, come out. Um, like, you, we want to be good. But he said, we don't know where to read. Like, and so I'm the religion major. So I said, well, you know, John is a good place to start. Maybe First John, Ephesians, somewhere like that. Kirk, who's kind of funny, leaned over to me and goes, we should tell him Song of Solomon. <laughs> and he whispered it, but junior high boys have bionic ears. And this one kid on the top bunk goes, Song of what? And so all of a sudden they're looking for it and they're speed reading. And most of them had the living Bible, which makes it worse. <laughs> and pretty soon the room is just filled with laughter about pomegranates and other things. Um, <laughs> And what had started as very spiritual was now very much not. And all of a sudden this pastor, who I always think of in my mind as like this old pastor, but my guess is he was 55, walked into the room, <laughs> kind of looked around and said, what's going on in here, right? And so I confessed for Kirk, he did it. Um, <laughs> he told him to ring Song of Solomon. Um, and then my favorite part of that was he, rather than being angry, he said, well, I'm glad you boys are reading it. And then he had them all sit down and they got an hour long sermon on the beauty of Christian marriage that I still blush about when I think about. Um, <laughs> but the Song of Solomon is this kind of odd book within the wisdom tradition, within the wisdom tradition in the Old Testament. But I would argue with you this morning that the thing that makes it so unique and odd is not just kind of the flowery language, the poetry, the, the sometimes over-the-top imagery of describing the other person's body, etc. But what makes it so unique is its contrast to some of the other ways Old, Test, Old Testament texts think about marriage and, and marital relatedness. If you were to ask me, when you think about the Old Testament, what what are the marriages or couples, the relationships that first come to mind? That list for me would be, would probably start with Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah had this kind of odd relatedness. The text describes Sarah as beautiful. It doesn't go into the details of Song of Solomon, but it describes her as beautiful. But beautiful in a way that actually creates problems for both she and Abraham. But so much of the description of their relatedness is rooted in the challenge of her barrenness, of their barrenness, her inability to have a child. 
And as I know, some of you in this room have experienced the challenge of what that means into a relationship and, and the ways in which what was perhaps meant for beauty and intimacy and relatedness now turns into burden and challenge and a reminder of an inability for something you want to have happen to happen. Forgive me for my next thought, but my next thought is somebody like Jacob. And the relationship between Jacob and Rachel and, by the way, Leah. I love the story. It's a story about how Jacob, who's just cheated his brother out of his birthright and his blessing, now is wandering through town and he sees somebody, and he sees Rachel. And then he gets tricked by Laban and ends up with both Leah and Rachel. But again, the whole story is rooted in the complicatedness of the objectification of who Leah is and the objectification of who Rachel is. It's rooted in kind of all of this intrigue of economics and work and being cheated by your father-in-law. And there's not a whole lot that's kind of loving or beautiful about it. It's, it's really just kind of messy. Of course, the other one that I think of is David and Bathsheba. Which too is a story about the relatedness, but relatedness that's, that's all caught up in power and manipulation and David's misuse of his authority and misuse of Bathsheba. And all of these stories, without getting too complicated at this point, all of these stories are also rooted in what I would call sort of the masculine viewpoint. Where the women tend to be objectified and misused and the men kind of will their power. And so what is meant for kind of beauty and goodness actually just kinds of turns into messiness. Are, are you with me this morning? Yeah. And so what makes Song of Solomon so odd is not just its images and its romanticness, but it stands in contrast to those ways of understanding marriage and intimacy. That's this text, and actually the text we read this morning is actually not from the male voice, although if you read the whole Song of Solomon, it's kind of like a... Shakespearean sonnet, a conversation between Romeo and Juliet at a lattice, oh, you know. But in this text, it is actually the woman who is saying, and I love it, here comes my man, leaping over the hills. He is like a gazelle. I, if I had a nickel for every time Debbie has said that about me. <laughs> I still wouldn't have a nickel. Uh, right? like that's, uh, that's the joke. I'll be here all week. Um, the, the power of the text is, is in the same way like in those sports movies, going back to saying, let me remind you of what this is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like the joy of your partner leaping across the hills like a gazelle, like a young stag. Trying to find you, calling out to you that spring has come. By the way, it's interesting. We as Protestants, we read one text every third year. The Song of Solomon is actually read in completion if we were Jews. In Judaism, it's read during Passover, likely because of these images of spring. 
The spring has come, newness has come, come on. It's a lovely day, let's have a picnic. Oh, come on. And he calls out to her and she responds and it's this beautiful picture of mutuality, of curiosity, of love, of, of genuinely wanting to know the other. It's as though Song of Solomon is taking us back. Do you remember that time? And some of you will remember because you're right now here in front of me. Do you remember that first time like in seventh or eighth grade where you were in love for the first time? And the one that you were infatuated with walked into your English class and you broke out in a sweat and you forgot what verbs and adverbs are. You forgot even how to talk and your tongue got thick. Song of Solomon wants to bring us back there to say, this is about love. This is about mutuality. It's about the beauty of what it means to be created people who in curiosity and beauty and love want and desire to discover and know the other just simply for the sake of knowing the other. That's its power, it's, its beauty in that way. Of, of course, part of the reason the Song of Solomon makes, makes it into the canon of the Old Testament is not just because it's this kind of romantic break out of the midst of all these messy relationships. But the Song of Solomon has tended to be, both in the Old Testament and in the Christian tradition, read allegorically. That's a word that means it's read as though this is what it's about, but it's actually about something else also. And it's not unusual to have allegorical readings. For example, in the New Testament, Jesus curses the fig tree, and he's mad that the tree doesn't produce fruit, but we know it's kind of an allegory, and it's, it's described in the text. It's an allegory for God's people and not being fruitful and the kind of curse that comes when we're not fruitful. But the Song of Solomon, an allegory can be kind of tricky because if we're not careful, we can take allegory and make it say whatever we want it to. And this represents this and this represents that. But historically, Jewish people have read the Song of Solomon not just as a celebration of love, but as a celebration of the God who longs to know us. The God who delights in us. We're going to spend, by the way, this fall in the wisdom tradition, and we will see this kind of language over and over again, a God who delights in creation. One of my favorite passages in the wisdom tradition is Proverbs 8, where it says, I was there at the beginning, speaking of wisdom, delighting in the creator's work. It's one of my favorite texts, delighting. Uh, I, I heard someone speak on that years ago saying, it's as though wisdom is saying to the creator, oh, that was awesome. Did you see the sunrise? That was so cool. Do it again. <laughs> Do it again, right? But it's a celebration of the God, and I know this sounds goofy, but, but the God who, who looks at you and says, you are such a wonder. Have you seen your hair in the morning? It is incredible sticking up that direction. There are times you can smell so bad. It's amazing. <laughs> kind of the way you know you are when you have a newborn. And every icky thing they do is amazing. Every bump and fluffy part. Like it's all beautiful. There's a desire... The Jewish people read this as a, a God who desires and loves us and it invites us to come and, and participate in that love of God. Can I say, by the way, because this is a wisdom tradition, those of you who are freshmen here today, 
One of the ways that this scripture is treated kind of allegorically is as an invitation to enjoy wisdom. And so forgive me for my silliness, but, but as somebody who teaches across the street, it grieves my heart that education has, in the same ways that sexuality has oftentimes become compromised and marketed and we are all objectified. In many ways, education has lost some of its mystery because it's really about getting a job when you're done. It's about getting through. There's no enjoyment. It's just showing up to class. And what do we have to do, right? And and sadly, all of us are kind of now a generation that's just constantly amused. And because we're constantly amused, we we stay focused on surfacey kinds of things, headlines that kind of grab our attention, but we, we're not really interested in the deeper, mysterious things about how life works. And so part of what I, I pray for you as you start this year, and I know it sounds silly, but part of me just wishes, at least internally, you don't have to do it externally, but internally, you'd kind of skip to class Tuesday morning delighting in the fact that the God who created all things wants to let you know about this universe that he has created. That there's something delightful about, about understanding. Oh, Sophie's a sophomore this year, but my favorite text from her last year was she texted Deb and I during the day one day, and she said, Dad, I'm holding a brain right now. I was like, awesome. Debbie's text was, but mine was Awesome. I'm holding a brain, yes. Those of you in biology and medicine, the, the mystery of humanness. Those of you in English and languages, the, the mystery of what it means for us to be able to, to understand God, but also to express to each other in the beauty of language. Theology, yes, theology, philosophy. Even business is a mystery to me. (laughs) I hope every once in a while you're reminded of what a gift exploring wisdom is. And that it won't be become marketed and become boring and commodified. But there will always be a joy in that. But mostly... This text is about the God who invites us to know the width and depth and height and breadth of the love of God for us, but to have joy in that love. I thought about a hymn a lot this week. Um, if you're new around here, we, we throw Wesley around quite a bit. John's brother Charles wrote a great hymn him whose words are love divine, all loves excelling, can be taken directly out of the text for today. The first verse says, love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. I love the last verse, especially. Finish then thy new creation. True and spotless, let us be, let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee. And here's the line, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Lost in wonder, 
love and praise. This text invites us to kind of recalibrate our souls. And I know that life can be so difficult and challenging and there's so much work involved that every once in a while, it is as though the spirit of God takes us back to that place and reminds us at the heart of it, it's all about responding to the God who loves us. As I got excited for today, I kept going back this week to uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon dedicated the temple. Theirs was almost as cool as ours. Um, But in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon gathers the people together. It's awesome. They planned a seven-day celebration to dedicate this new temple this place where God would meet with them and they would meet with God. They planned a seven-day celebration, but it was so much fun, they extended it seven more days. And then the text says in 1 Kings 8 that on the eighth day, Solomon said, go home. He sent them home. I love that language. Rather than saying on the first day of the third week, it's the eighth day. There's some scholars who argue when the language of the eighth day is used, it's a language that like we see in the resurrection story, the eighth day is oftentimes not just the first day of a new week, but the eighth day is the first day of a new creation. And so here are people who've come to meet with God. This temple has become a recognition of the love that God has for them and they have built it in response as a gift of love back to God. And now it is this place where they meet and for 14 days they celebrate, but then they head home as though all things have been made new on the eighth day. I know, um, I know that the first day in this room is really, really fun. Um, I hope it's fun for you. By the way, if it's not, that's why we included the James text about being slow to speak. (laughs) It's part of the wisdom tradition too, and it would be wise for you. And I know like when you buy a new car and it's so much fun to drive it off the lot, I know in about a week we'll have a ding somewhere. Somebody's going to throw up on the carpet eventually. But this morning there is this sense. And I want you to know the desire to renew, refresh this space. In some ways it's about wanting the next generation to have a space where they feel at home. That this space that has meant so much for generations would continue to do that. There's some practical realities too. It was... We're getting tired of people tripping on the carpet. But the reality is this newness will at some point not be quite as new. But in this moment, God gathers us together to be reminded that in the challenges of life, at its heart is just simply this. God is fascinatingly, curiously, never-endingly in love with you. And calls us to come and enjoy and celebration. And as a kind of offering back to God. To offer that love back to God. There's an old chorus that we used to sing. 
It's the way I learned Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Here's the key line. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And renew a right spirit within me. I thought about that chorus um, a lot this week. Just personally, it's been so fun to get to do this. Especially in a year that has been filled with so many challenges. We're trying to figure out how to step next and move forward and the politics of life, the, the difficulties of life for all of us in this room at times have felt overwhelming. My hope is today, like it was in Solomon's day, a chance to gather in the presence of God and be reminded that at the heart of it all is the love of God that invites us to love God in return. And that for this moment and in this place and in this day, we would hear the voice of the God who loves inviting us to come and to sing for springtime has come. And it is time for us to have the joy of the Lord restored. As we close this morning, um, I I don't know where you are this morning in terms of your level of joy. My hope is that today would be a reminder where God would take you back to that place where you would be reminded of how deep his love is for you and the opportunity to respond in God's love. But as we close this morning, our our district superintendent, Scott Shaw, is with us today. Scott and Vicki, thanks for being with us today. And in just a moment, we're going to sing. And these altars are open for you this morning. And if you'd like to pray, this may be a moment to say, I, um, yes, I need a a clean heart created in me, but more than anything, oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And may this be a day where the joy of the Lord is indeed our strength. And if that's to you this morning and you'd like to respond in that way, I invite you to come as we sing a great chorus that just simply says, we love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. And so sing that with us together and come and pray if you'd like to today.